So Matthew chapter 5, today we are picking it up in verse 17 and reading down to verse 26. The word of God reads as follows, Jesus speaking, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in the danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So Lord, this morning we come to your word and we trust that as we have read and heard the word of the Lord this morning that you will speak to us Lord may your word penetrate our hearts go beyond our hearing to the very depths of our being and may you have something for every one of us this morning as we listen to you in Jesus name amen so as we continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, two weeks ago, we considered the Beatitudes at the beginning of chapter 5, and we looked at these things that Jesus said to help us understand the neediness of our relationship before God, the poor in spirit being our need for humility to just bow before the Lord and to recognize who He is. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, understanding our position, our estate before God, our sinfulness and mourning over our sin. Blessed are the meek, talking about the meek being people who have strength under control. Meek are people are not weak people, but people who know how to control themselves, who have a strong sense of self-control, and that's a fruit, of course, of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that as we become born again and the Spirit of God lives within us, that there is this desire for the things of God, a desire for the Word of God, a desire for rightness, for righteousness. And blessed are the merciful that we learn to be gracious and merciful to others because the Lord is within us. Blessed are the pure in heart. So as the Lord comes into our lives, as the Holy Spirit takes up residence, there is less of a desire uh, as there was before we came to know Christ for the things of the world and for evil things, and now there is a desire for the good things of God, to have a purity of heart, a desire for holiness in our lives. 
And then blessed are the peacemakers. We who ought to be the peacemakers of the world because we understand what peace is. Peace isn't just the absence of conflict uh, between people, but it's first and foremost peace between man and God through the man Jesus Christ. And then as we introduce others to the peace of God, then they can know the peace of God uh, in their lives and in their relationships. And then understanding uh, the idea of the world hates God, the world hates the good things. And the more we bring salt and light, which was that next passage, uh, the more we allow the Holy Spirit to set us apart and to sanctify us and to realize that because of the Spirit of God within us, we are to be people of salt. We are to bring healing. We are to bring a preserving influence to the world when people are going off their rocker and, and tilting, that we bring not political stability, but godly stability, righteousness stability to people. We point them to the Lord as the only answer and the only hope that anyone on the face of planet Earth can have. And in these crazy days we're living in, between COVID and politics, there is always the temptation to espouse our particular point of view, but our particular point of view ought to be informed by and defined from the Word of God as opposed to our political leanings. Hopefully our political leanings are defined by the Word of God and not just uh, our opinion on certain things. Everybody has an opinion, but in reality, the only person's opinion who matters is God's, correct? So we want to make sure that our views of certain things uh, in the world, uh, really of all things, come from the Word of God. And so we come to this point now where Jesus begins to address something that was sort of the elephant in the room for their day and age, and that elephant in the room was the law. Because the scribes and the Pharisees had been teaching for many years that they were the only ones who could truly understand and teach the Word of God. In fact, in that day, of course, uh, this is way before the printing press, the only way anybody could have a copy of anything, of any kind of document, it had to be handwritten. And so the scribes were the copyists of the Word of God, of the law. And so when they would transcribe or, or write or copy, I should say, the, the law and the prophets, it was very uncommon for the people to have a copy of that. Only people who were educated, only the learned, only scholars, only people who were in Hebrew schools could even have access to those documents. And so the people depended completely upon two things, the example and the model of their teachers, which were the scribes and the Pharisees, and what they told the people that the Word of God said. So the people had no way to validate or to verify what the Word of God said for themselves as we have today. We have Bibles in our hand. As I'm saying something and you think it doesn't sound right, and you, probably that happens often, you have the ability to turn and to say, well, did he quote that correctly? Did he quote it in context or out of context? I mean, is that really what the Bible says? But the people didn't have the access to that. And God had spoken many times through the prophets in, in times past that he, he held his prophets, he held his teachers to a higher standard. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, God got really serious in judging uh, the prophets and the teachers because they were leading the people astray. 
And so Jesus comes now to address this elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is what the scribes and the Pharisees told the people that the law meant. And Jesus is about to begin to explain that. So Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. We're going to talk about this as we go through it, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And I find even today that often there are believers, and we, let's call ourselves New Testament Christians, who look at the Old Testament and they say, I don't really think reading the Old Testament is of value because we're under we're not under law, we're under grace. We don't need the Old Testament. I, I had a believing friend many, many years ago who told me this. And when I challenged him on it, he's like, oh, I'm not going to read the Old Testament. It's not worth it. And I was like, dude, you're missing out on the goodness of God, the good things of God. Jesus is going to explain that this morning. He says here, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Why? Because the law had to be fulfilled. You see, the law was a mirror to show us who we truly are before God. The, the law was a mirror to show us our great need for God. As we're going to talk about in just a few moments, the law laid out our sinfulness. We're going to take a brief look at the Ten Commandments and remind ourselves of, of what those things were. But Jesus said, no, I didn't come to wipe it away, to destroy it. I came to fulfill it in every way. Verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. God holds his word in high regard. The word of the Lord endures forever. You see, you and I, we waste words. We, there is such a thing as idle words with us, but not with God. God has never wasted his breath in saying anything. Everything that comes from the, the word of God, from the mouth of God, from the hand of God, the word of God as we have it holding it in our hands here, is truth. So Jesus says everything in this book will be fulfilled till heaven and earth pass away. Now, when will heaven and earth pass away? Is he just speaking in hyperbole? hyperbole? Is he just speaking in sort of a, a grandiose, exaggerating fashion? Or is he speaking truth? Well, in Revelation chapter 21, you can mark it down, we have the time when heaven and earth will pass away. And that, that word there, pass or pass away, means to completely pass away, to, to to go away into the distance. It's like when you throw a piece of firewood on the fire in a matter of minutes, that piece of wood, as you knew it, is going to be disintegrated and be ashes. That's passing away. In Revelation 21, John has this vision. He says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Jesus says, not one jot or tittle. And what he's referring to there, if you've ever seen Hebrew or Greek, there are marks uh, both above and below letters uh, that often indicate the, the shift in voice inflection. And the letter may be the same or the word may be the same, but then the mark over that word changes the use and the meaning of that word. And he's saying those little marks, those little accent marks, or you know how, for example, in English you have the letter P with just a slight little mark down on the right, you have an R. And what he's saying is those little marks are important to God because God's word is important. God's word is true. And God's word will never pass away until everything is fulfilled. So the law is not unimportant, but the law is a mirror. The law can't heal us, but the law does show us what our sin is. And Jesus is saying, I will fulfill the law in every way. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, because all flesh is as, as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. In Psalm 138, verse 2, we find this written, the Lord speaking, I will worship toward your holy temple, speaking through the psalmist rather, and praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. God places incredible importance on his word. Now the law is often used in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used as the law. Sometimes it's, it's spoken of as the law and the prophets. And it's what we have as the Old Testament collection of writings. To be more specific, the law was broken up into three sections. The moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial portions of the law. The moral portion would be the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial portion would be uh, how we approach and worship God, such as contained in the book of Leviticus, for example. And the judicial law, where the laws were given over how do you uh, adjudicate or rule over people from a legal perspective? How do you deal with problems between people? How do you deal with murder? How do you deal with stealing? How do you deal with all of these, these crimes, one man against another? And so the law was broken up into these three categories, and it's these uh, three categories and the scribes and the Pharisees' interpretation of those that caused the problem. In fact, Jesus would later say to the scribes and the Pharisees, woe to you because you, you tithe your, your herbs, your mint and your cumin and your dill, but you won't lift one finger to help someone in need. You lay heavy burdens upon the backs of people by telling them all the things they have to do to obey the law, but you won't even help them one little bit 
and ministering to them the word of God. Now, in the Ten Commandments, and if you don't know where those are, uh, they're in two places, but uh, the one I always kind of go to is Exodus chapter 20. I think the other place is Deuteronomy 10, if I'm not mistaken. And we find when you read through the Ten Commandments that they're really broken up into two sections. And you remember Moses came down off the mountain with two tablets. On one tablet had all of the laws that came from God relating to man's relationship to God, or rather God's relationship to man. And then on the second tablet, we have the laws God gave for man's relationship with man. On tablet number one, there are four laws written around God's relationship with us. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a graven image if you like the King James. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. On the other tablet, the tablet surrounding man's relationship with man. Number five, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number 10, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. So these are the things that Jesus is talking about. In verse 19 of Matthew 5, he says, Moreover, therefore, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is now, as he's speaking here in verse 19, pointing to the scribes and the Pharisees, saying, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men also to break them shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, we often look at things in the word of God and we measure them or judge them by our ability. But you see, God, who is holy and righteous, is the one who spoke his word. And so these men, these scribes and these Pharisees, or if I could say it this way, these interpreters of the law, went on to develop out of the Ten Commandments over 613 other additional commandments or traditions on how you could keep the word of God or how you could break the word of God. In fact, of the 613 laws that they came up with to hopefully better explain and help us understand or help the Jews understand how to keep the law, 365 of those were shall nots and 240 of those were you shall. So you can imagine we already, you know, I read the Ten Commandments to you. We're already in trouble with number one. And now we've got an additional 613 that these teachers of the law have now expounded upon, and and both sides of the the 613, the 365 shall nots and the 240 you need tos, were very legalistic. Did you realize they had over 40 different ways that a person could break the Sabbath? Where legalism exists, there is no life. There's no love of God. And with these teaching of their teaching, rather, of the law, uh, they made it impossible 
for people. And, and I don't know about you, I've certainly had this experience in my life in, in previous years, you know, going to church, sitting there, listening to what was being said from up front, and walking away feeling like a little tiny shrunken human being, like how could I ever measure up? And you think, how could I ever work hard enough? How, much, how could I ever do enough to be pleasing to God? And if we walk away with that understanding, then we have an incorrect understanding. That's why Jesus said he came to fulfill. You see, Jesus came to become sin for us. He who knew no sin came to become sin that we might become his righteousness, Paul tells us. Jesus came to do what no man could do, that is to fulfill the law. He came to be the sacrifice. You see, God is holy and righteous, and he requires that when law is broken, that there must be a penalty. There must be someone who pays the fine, who is judged for the breaking of the law. And if you think of just breaking one law, but now you've got 10. Now you've got, according to the scribes and the Pharisees, over 600. We are so guilty. We are so deep in the mire. It's like someone threw a stone around our our ankle and we were taken out on the ocean and dropped to the very deepest part of the sea. That's how far underwater we are with our sin in relation to God. But Jesus came to bear the penalty for us. You see, the Bible uses words like justification. That means to be made right with God. Propitiation, which means to satisfy the wrath of God, that there is a penalty for our sin. You know, if you get a speeding ticket and you have to go pay that fine, unless someone pays that fine for you, you have to pay it. Now, let's just say the fine is more money than you have. Now you go and you can't pay the fine. Now you get thrown into jail because you can't pay the fine. And how can you ever get the money to pay the fine if you're in jail because you can't work to get the money to pay the fine? It's like this hopeless situation. But God allowed the law to point us to the hopelessness of the human condition and of the fact that we can never satisfy God. We can never uphold the righteous requirements of the law. That's why Jesus came, so that we could have hope, so that we, we can realize that although I deserve to be thrown off that boat into the deepest part of the sea, he says, no, Father, don't judge them. They, they don't know what they're doing. Let me step in. Let me pay the penalty, not just for the one, but for the many, for all. Jesus said those who were teaching and breaking the commandments and in reinterpreting the commandments to make it a lesser thing. Well, you know, God didn't really mean. And, you know, we, we find this happening today in the church, don't we? We find people in pulpits reinterpreting God's word to make it a, a more palatable thing. For example, some churches won't even speak the word sin. They won't talk about the fact that we need to be saved. They won't talk about the bloodiness of the cross, the, the necessity of Christ to go to the cross for our benefit. They only want to talk of love. God's love is true, but God's justice is just as real as God's love. When Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, understand that the law and the prophets all point to Jesus. They pointed in a foreshadowing way to who Jesus was and who he would be. 
You see, Jesus fulfilled the doctrinal teachings of the law and the prophets in that he brought full revelation of what they meant. Jesus fulfilled the predictive prophecy of the law and the prophets in that he is the promised one, showing the reality behind the shadows that were merely allusions in the Old Testament to him who would come. Jesus is now saying, I am he, I am that one. Jesus fulfilled the moral and legal demands of the law and the prophets in that he fully obeyed them. He is the only human being who ever never broke the law. He fully and completely kept the law in every way. Jesus fulfilled the penalty of the law and the prophets for us by his death on the cross, taking the penalty that we deserved. You may remember the Day of Atonement. We know it on our calendar as Yom Kippur. And I don't know how they fulfill it today because that day in the, in the temple, and the temple is not existence, in existence right now, <clears throat> is when the high priest would go into the most holy place. And back behind the, the, the temple of the most, the, excuse me, the curtain of the most holy place would be the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've seen the Indiana Jones movies, then you have sort of a visual. That was a pretty decent uh, replica of the Ark of the Covenant. And you have the, the angels on the top with their wings spread out over the top of that flat piece of gold. And that flat area was called the mercy seat. And when you took the lid off inside were the two tablets, the tablets of the law symbolizing man's rebellion against the law and man's inability to keep the law. Then there was the bowl of manna, which symbolized how man grumbled against the Lord. God provided for them in the wilderness, and, and they, they grumbled against him continually. And then there was Aaron's rod that had budded. Remember when the people came and challenged the authority of God as it, as it had been invested uh, in Moses and Aaron, and then there was, and they said, okay, we'll, we'll put our, our rods in the tent of meeting and we'll figure out in the morning, whoever's rod buds is, you know, God is speaking and validating that. <clears throat> then it was Aaron's rod that had budded. And those elements were in the Ark of the Covenant. And so God would look down from his holy place in heaven and see inside the Ark of the Covenant and go, man has broken my law. Man is constantly grumbling and complaining against everything that I do for him. And man rejects my authority. But then the priest would go in and he would take the blood of the, the pure spotless lamb and he would sprinkle it on the top of the mercy seat. And now God, as it were, puts on his rose-colored glasses or his blood-colored glasses and he looks down inside and he no longer sees. It's like kryptonite to Superman. He looks and he don't, no longer sees those symbols of man's rebellion against God. Instead, he sees propitiation. He sees the satisfaction of his wrath against sin. And God looks down and says, because the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled, you're acceptable to me now. You can come into my presence. That's why when Jesus died on the cross and breathed his last and said it is finished, and the veil on the temple was rent in two, and that, remember that was an 18-inch thick tapestry. And it was torn in two top from to bottom. You see, if it had been torn in two bottom to top, it would have been evidence that man had gone in and tried to tear the veil. But God himself, as it were, took his hand and cut that veil in half from top to bottom. 
And when he did that, he opened the way. And the way for us into the most holy place was paved so that we could have a relationship with God. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And Jesus said in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were super zealots when it came to keeping the law. They were the people who taught, but then they also had this special garb that they would wear. They would wear their black robes, and they were a certain length, and they were all measured, and they fit just, just right. And as they would walk down the street, if they came near someone they deemed to be unclean, they would literally you know, go around them and keep their distance, a la social distancing, right? <laughs> we're walking into a store, if this happened to you, and you've got your mask on, and someone comes into your personal space, and it's like, yo, dude, six feet, man, back up, Right? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees had that on steroids. They would go around people. They're walking down the street, and they accidentally breathe in a fly or a gnat. They start coughing. They go over to the side. This is true. And they would stick their fingers down their throat and gag themselves till they threw up to get that uncleanness out of their bodies. When they were copying the law, the word of God, when a scribe came to a portion of the law that came to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, they would get up, change their clothes, take a bath, come back, get a fresh inkwell, a fresh pen, and then pen the word of God, the name of God, excuse me. And then they would continue, and then the next time they came to the name of God, Yahweh, they would get up and repeat that process. Do you understand how serious they were about keeping the law? And this was their example to the people. That's why when Jesus told the example of the Good Samaritan, you may remember that story. Uh, men were walking by. This man had been beaten and left by the side of the road. Uh, the, 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 the priest is walking by. is on his way to, you know, the Sabbath ceremony and sees the man lying there. And he's like, well, I, I can't help him. I, I would become defiled. I would become ceremonially unclean. The guy's laying there bleeding out. And he's like, yep, sorry, dude. <laughs> I got to go worship God. And he leaves him. And Jesus points out the hypocrisy of that. You see, that's what they were like. That, th these were the examples to the people. And Jesus is saying, look, unless you keep the law to that degree and even more, what hope is there for you? And Paul says in Romans 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law has said, had said, you shall not covet. You see, the Christian is done with the law as a means of gaining a righteous standing before God. One passage that explains this is Galatians 2.21, which says, For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. However, the law stands as the perfect expression of God's ethical character and requirements. Jesus fulfilled it. How can we, how can anyone ever hope to exceed the righteous requirements of the scribes and the Pharisees? The Pharisees were so scrupulous in their keeping of the law that they would even tithe from the small spices obtained from their herb gardens. The heart of this devotion to God is shown by a modern day issue in 1992, some tenants in three apart they let allowed rather three apartments in an orthodox neighborhood in Israel to burn to the ground 
while they went to ask a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath violated Jewish law because they believed that by using an electrical device there would be, quote, kindling a fire. So while the buildings are on fire, they go to seek a reading on the law before they pick up the phone. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would, would do all that. And while they were there debating that with the rabbi, and the rabbi finally came to the decision and said, well, yeah, I think it's probably okay. At that point, the buildings had burned to the ground. We can exceed their righteousness because our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees in kind, not in degree. Paul describes the two kinds of righteousness in Philippians chapter 3 where he says, Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, it was, it was, I was blameless, but what things were gained to me I have counted as lost for Christ, but indeed I count all things lost that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is in God by faith. Now we move into a section beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter where you may look there and see uh, two phrases that are repeated. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but then in the next verse he says, but I say unto you. And if you have your Bible there, and your Bible may have subheadings, you may see the headings such as murder begins in the heart at verse 21. At verse 27, adultery in the heart. Verse 31, marriage is sacred and binding. Verse 33, Jesus forbids oaths. Verse 38, going the second mile. And verse 43, loving your enemies. Jesus is now going to take six instances of how the scribes and the Pharisees had interpreted the law. And he's going to compare it before them. And he's going to say, you have heard it was said, but I say unto you. Now understand what Jesus is doing here. We're only going to get to one of those this morning, this issue of anger. Jesus is walking them through it, and, he, and Jesus is helping them understand, although they probably don't fully understand at this point, that just as God gave the law to Moses, Jesus is there helping them understand as God what the true intent of the law was. So in verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And so their strict interpretation was, As long as you don't actually physically kill somebody, you're okay. You have not committed murder. And whoever murders will be in the danger of the judgment. Jesus in verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. For, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. See, Jesus is pointing to the issue of the heart. See, the issue is not the act. The issue is what drives the act. And what drives the act is the heart, the attitude of our heart. And Jesus is saying the root of murder is usually anger. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, and people always get hung up on this, and they say, well, so if, I'm, if I have a really good reason, you know, for being angry with somebody, that's okay, right? And what he's pointing to here is, 
you know, people would, would parse out the legalities and say, well, this was a legitimate reason to be angry and this one is not. And I think it would be safest for us to understand it in this way. When is my anger, when is your anger ever truly righteous according to the word of God? For example, let's just take for those of us who are married, uh, when is your anger toward your spouse truly righteous? It usually isn't, right? And when we can apply that across all of our relationships in the world, it's safest to understand this, that our anger is never righteous. And he's saying here that anger is what leads to murder. And murder happens in the heart before it becomes an act in reality. Jesus is not saying thinking about murder and committing murder are exactly the same, but he's certainly saying that it goes there, right? This is where it leads So we need to judge ourselves appropriately by the law because, see, the law isn't there to say, as long as you don't cross this line, you're okay. He's saying, no, no, the law judges the intent of the heart. So whoever shall uh, be angry with his brother uh, without cause shall be in danger of the judgment, whoever says to his brother, Raka. So let's talk about this. To call someone Raka, express contempt for their intelligence. Now let's just stop for a moment. In the world we live in today of social media, politics, and everything else, and how many of us have called someone the equivalent of Raka? Have you ever called someone an idiot? Have you ever called someone a fool? You see, what's happening is we are putting ourselves, James talks about this, we don't even have time to go into this today, When we put ourselves in the place of God, then we begin to judge people and say, you're a fool, you're an idiot, you're stupid. Calling someone a fool showed contempt for their character. Either calling them raka or calling them a fool um, uh, broke the heart of the law against murder, even if it did not commit murder. Commentators have, excuse me, translated the idea behind raka as nitwit blockhead, numbskull, bonehead, or brainless idiot. Raka is an almost untranslatable word because it describes a tone of voice more than anything else. Its whole accent is the accent of contempt. It is the word of one who despises another with an arrogant contempt. So Jesus is getting to the heart of the matter, isn't he? As he exposes excuse me, the issue of Raqqa, of uh, using words to call people names. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, Paul said, Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. What he's saying there in that passage is this, that anger can unwittingly open a door to allow the influence of Satan in our lives. He goes on to say, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may give grace to the hearers. And then says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you understand that anger, which leads to the words that we speak? And Jesus said clearly, didn't he, that 
out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That our anger can give place to the devil and our anger can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to stay away from those things, he goes on to say in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You see, anger is something that so often gets the best of us. When anger smolders inside of us, it it becomes malice. When anger bursts forth into action, it's called wrath. Anger and malice, these things are listed in Galatians chapter 5 as the works of the flesh. He says, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, excuse me, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, and he goes on. And you see that anger is in that list. Here it is suggested that anger can be prevented from degenerating into sin um, if we set a strict time limit. And he says here in this passage, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Something that we would be wise to do when we are angry is to sit down with the Lord at some point before sunset or at the very least before you go to bed and to say, God, help me with this. Why am I so angry? How can I deal with this righteously before you? What are some of the things that can cause anger within us? Pain, physical pain, stubbing your toe, hitting your thumb with the hammer, Physical or emotional pain, emotional pain often hurt feelings. The, the minefield of our feelings, right? People often don't know that they step on those minefields in our lives, and then we become offended, we become hurt, and then we become angry. We think that people don't value us. We may perceive a threat, you know, the fight or flight mode. People perceive something is happening, and then they become angry, and that anger is more of a protective mechanism. Fear, irrational fear. Fear is not usually rational. Not having all the facts about a situation and jumping to conclusions, making judgments without knowledge, feeling or sensing rejection, having been humiliated about something, or maybe having a perceived inequity in a situation, feeling like you've been blamed or been made the scapegoat of something maybe been made the butt of someone's joke, that you've lost control or at least perceived control and and anger becoming a reaction to that, having a victim mentality, feeling powerless and hopeless, feeling trapped with no way out. Maybe you're the kind of person that has an attitude of rebellion and that rebellion is expressed through anger or you want to strike back and to be punitive because of the hurt or the pain that you've experienced. Possibly having experienced trauma, actually having been a victim, such as people in our military who have experienced PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, through horrendous things that they were forced to witness, perhaps even something as bad as torture 
But these are just a few of the things that can trigger or evoke our anger. And you see, modern psychology, while it may intend to help us, tells us, no, no, it's okay. Let yourself feel all those things. But understand something, that in God's economy, God says anger will lead to a bad place if we don't deal with it godly and properly and righteously. How do we deal with these things? Well, we go before the Lord. We cast our burdens on Him. We cry out to God and we say, God, what happened to me was wrong. That injustice, whatever it is, God, help me. And allow the peace of God which surpasses understanding to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We go to the Lord. We give it to Him. We cry out. We pray. Maybe we go to a trustworthy brother or sister and we pour out our heart and we say, God, pray for, uh, please pray for me. Please help me through this. But we deal with it in a godly and a righteous way rather than sitting in a corner and stewing and chewing on it and allowing it to seethe and to percolate and to brood deep within and never having dealt with it appropriately and honestly before God. Because if we don't deal with it before God, what he spoke in Ephesians 4 will happen. We will give place to the devil. We will grieve the Holy Spirit of God in our lives if the fire of anger is not quenched by the love and the forgiveness of the Holy Spirit. You see, anger can consume us. Anger can just eat us alive. One commentator said, the devil's work is to accuse and to divide the family of God and to sow discord among the brethren. When we harbor anger in our hearts, we do the devil's work for him. That's what it means to open the door to the devil through anger. Verse 23, Matthew 5, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So when you come to a time of worship, whether it's here coming to the building and coming to a time of service where we worship God and put ourselves under the authority of his word and allow him to speak to us. Or maybe it's just your own personal time where you're sitting down alone with God, opening his word and praying, and you come to the altar as it were. And then you remember, listen to the language here, that your brother has something against you. That we are to take that and say, you know, Lord, I, I think maybe there's something there. And he says, no, no, leave it. Leave everything there and go seek out that brother or sister and say, look, is there something between us? Because I want to go worship God, but I can't because there's this thing. And I need to know if there's really a thing that we need to deal with. You see, so often we can take the position, can't we, of saying, look, it, uh, I'm not the one who did the offending. I'm the offend dead. And I need to... You know, they need to come to me and ask my forgiveness. Now, Jesus, see, he goes to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? He says, no, no, you need to go to them. Let me paraphrase this, if I may. You need to be the more mature person, and you need to seek them out. And you need to go and say, look, it, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm, I'm sorry if I've offended you. Can we talk? Can we work this out? And Jesus is saying an unresolved issue with a brother or sister can interfere with our relationship with him, it can interfere with our ability to worship God and to hear him clearly and to receive from him. 
Peter even goes so far in 1 Peter chapter 3 as he's talking about marriage, and he says to the husbands to, to live with our wives in an understanding way, and if we don't do so, he says our prayers as husbands, as men, as spiritual leaders of the home can be hindered. Go read it, 1 Peter chapter 3. It's the same idea. And he says, hey, leave your gift there and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, we also realize that sometimes when you go and you try to be reconciled to somebody, sometimes they don't want to be reconciled. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably, seek to have peace with all men. In other words, you've done the right thing. You have a clear conscience. You've gone and you've sought them out and you've said, hey, can we work this out? And if they in the end reject it and they say, no, I don't want to talk to you, get away from me, I'm not interested in being reconciled with you or whatever, then you say, well, one more time, and just here, you know, the, the Lord told me to come. He, it's his word. Can we, is there anything we can do to, to resolve this? No, I don't want to talk to you. Okay, well, you've done all you can, but at least you've done it. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Again, the heart of the matter, not the, the jot and the tittle of the law, not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. So you're on the way to court. You're walking with the person who you know, has a complaint against you. You're going to go to the judge. And he says, hey, work it out before, settle it out of court. Don't let it go before the judge. You don't know how the judge is going to rule. You want to take your chances before the judge? Work it out with your, with your brother or your sister before you ever come before the judge. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. If you go before the judge and the judge says, nope, uh, you're guilty and you're going to pay. And you're going to pay every last penny until it, you know, it, the debt is settled. And you're thrown in prison. And you can't work and you can't pay. What do you do? How do you get through that? Jesus says, look, you don't want to end up there. Deal with the heart. Deal with the intent. The law deals with the intent. And the scribes and the Pharisees said, no, 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 it's about the letter of the law. Jesus says, no, it's about the spirit of the law. And so before we can get into these next ones, hopefully we can work through those next week. That's the point. The issue is always a matter of the heart, not the letter of the law. And Jesus came to fulfill all of that so that we don't have to. You see, we don't have to live in contention. We don't have to live at odds with people. If we are first at peace with God, then we can be at peace with our fellow man. If we are living and abiding in the presence of Jesus Christ, then, then we can bring the hope of the good news of the gospel to those around us in our marriages, with our children, with our co-workers, with those people. I mean, we probably all have them in our lives, angry people, people at work, people at the gas station, people in the supermarket. There's just angry people everywhere, aren't they? I see it, I see it all the time. On the road, oh my goodness. Driving down to the memorial service yesterday, and I was completely shocked. If you weren't going at least 90 in the left-hand lane, you were going to get run over. I mean, people are just out of their minds. 
The Lord calls us to be salt and light. He calls us to be different people. And we become different people by being in his presence. Not because we determine, okay, I'm going to try harder to be a nice person. That never works. It never works. It might last for a day. It might last for a few hours. But unless we have a change of heart, unless we're truly born again, unless the Spirit of God comes in and changes me and changes you, there's no hope apart from that. And that's why Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law so that we might go into the most holy place, so that we might become children of God. That's his desire. It's a matter of the heart. Remember that. Lord, we just come to you this morning. We thank you for how you have ministered to us and spoken to us through your word. And Lord, I pray for all of us here uh, in this room and listening online that you might just help us to deal with whatever issues we might have this morning before you, whether they just be issues of sin, issues of anger, uh, issues of passion, whatever it may be, Lord, feelings of hurt and unresolved forgiveness, uh, maybe from yesterday, maybe from years ago, Lord. Lord, you said when our sin was judged at the cross that it was done once for all. God, may you give us that kind of freedom in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, in dealing with people, because that's the way you deal with us. You said, Jesus, it is finished. May it be so for us. May we walk in the freedom and the newness of life that you have given to us. May we forgive just as we've been forgiven. May we love just as we've been loved. This morning, if you have never put your faith and your trust in our Lord Jesus Christ, we just ask you just right now to lay it down to come before him and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want that forgiveness in my life. I want to be free from the things that bind and constrain me, from these emotions, this anger, the bitterness, the hurt, whatever it might be, and let Jesus come in and let him heal you this morning. He is the only one who can. And he has promised that he will. Lord, you said that you are the one who binds up the brokenhearted. May you do so this morning as people cry out to you. May you hear their cry and answer. And we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.